This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Childhood instability isn't bad because those kids are less likely to graduate from college or more likely to be incarcerated or, you know, more likely to be addicted to drugs or something. Like childhood instability is bad because of the kid who is experiencing it. A lot of people would have rather have had a, a different kind of life, including me, of just like, well, you know, you don't get to whatever, go to Yale or something, but you get to have like a better early life. I would have taken that deal. So this is a podcast about belief and extreme belief, ideology, religion, cults, and all those things. And today we're looking into something called luxury beliefs. My guest today is Rob Henderson, who is thought to have coined the term luxury beliefs and has been lauded by the likes of Jordan Peterson and former New York Times writer Barry Weiss, who each did a podcast episode about this very theme. So what are luxury beliefs? I hear you whisper into your podcast player. These are ideologies shaped around beliefs that make their holders, the holders of the beliefs, look fashionably virtuous, but have pretty much zero cost to that holder and wouldn't actually affect that holder's life. So for example, defund the police is a luxury belief. It's one thing when that belief is held by someone whose life might be affected by it, but when it's middle-class university students who have never needed the police, it's just an empty luxury belief. It won't affect them. It will affect other people who need it much more. Rob Henderson posits that another such belief is the destruction of the traditional family unit. And you'll see how he uses all sorts of examples of people who support the eradication of the family unit, who themselves profited most from a stable and traditional upbringing. It's easy to say things that make you look cool about fucking the system and being a rebel. But when it is done from such a place of safety and luxury then it is indeed a luxury belief. A bit more about Rob Henderson. As you'll hear, he was brought up in the California adoption system, passed from foster home to foster home, and longed for a stable family. Against all odds, he went on to study at Yale and then the University of Cambridge. He doesn't consider himself proof that an unstable family can produce success, but rather sees himself as a lucky outlier. His writing focuses on psychology, social class, and success, and he should know better than most about those things. Visit his Substack, which is his newsletter full of fascinating articles on robkhenderson.com. He's also on Twitter, Rob K. Henderson. I'm on andrewgold underscore OK. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy this. And sign up to patreon.com slash andrewgold to support me. Coming up are episodes with the man who lived biblically for a year, that's AJ Jacobs, and astronomer Rebecca Smethurst on black holes. But now you're on the edge of luxury beliefs with Rob Henderson. Yeah. 
Rob Henderson, welcome on the edge. Um, tell me, what are luxury beliefs? Hey, Andrew, thanks. Great to be here. Uh, luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. There are a couple of different um, ways that I approached this idea and how I developed it over time. So I I had a pretty uh, tumultuous upbringing, which, you know, we're, we can maybe get into later. But, you know, long story short, I'm, I'm currently uh, a PhD candidate uh, in psychology here at Cambridge. Um, before this, I studied psychology at Yale. But before I entered these universities, my life was a lot different. I grew up in foster homes in L.A. and kind of bounced around, you know, different kind of living arrangements uh, basically right up until I left high school uh, when I was 17 and joined the military. So that was sort of my trajectory, foster care. Then, you know, this I was sort of adopted, but there was a series of, you know, really um, trying uh, circumstances, my adoptive family, there were divorces and remarriages and just a lot of drama. And so I joined the military and then, and then I went to Yale. So I had this sort of indirect winding path to higher education. So by the time I got to Yale, I was hearing, you know, unusual and peculiar social and political views that I'd never heard before, um, based on, you know, where I grew up and where I came from and my experiences when I was enlisted. And so, you know, those experiences at Yale, in addition to a lot of the readings I was doing at the time, I was reading, you know, classic sociological texts from Thorsten Veblen, who wrote this book called The Theory of the Leisure Class. I re read a book uh, called Distinction um, by the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. I was reading uh, more more modern empirical psychology research as well on this uh, idea of social status and how important this appears to be to people. And it seems to be especially important to people who are already relatively prominent, people who have uh, relatively large amounts of wealth and influence and power are the people who actually care the most about obtaining more status, more wealth. And so all of these things combined led me to form this idea of luxury beliefs of uh, people who espouse these views that, um, you know, confer a lot of validation and a lot of esteem from their peers around them. Uh, you know, there, there was this thing when I was at Yale, I, I may still exist, uh, where, where people would snap their fingers if they approved of what you were saying. I mean, it's almost like the in-person version of a like, you know, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, they, you know, if you, they like what you're saying, they click like, but in real life, there's no way to like, right? So they, they snap their fingers, you know, they do this move of like, oh yeah, I agree. And they do this move. Is clapping seen as aggressive <laughs> well i have heard that some universities have outlawed clapping i don't know if that was what was going on there uh but snapping snapping the fingers of like yeah this is you know i totally agree with what you're saying and, and usually those finger snaps came after some kind of peculiar luxury belief and we can get into examples as well but these beliefs are predominantly held by people who are relatively affluent educated, attend good schools, uh, work in, you know, these sort of professional managerial white collar occupations. So, so those were the, the, the ideas that were, that were sort of floating around in my mind. Uh, this was in 2015 and I didn't really formalize the idea until I had arrived at grad school in 20, 2018 and I didn't start writing about it until 2019. But yeah, there were, there, it was, it was sort of informed by both my personal firsthand experiences, my observations of what was going on around me at these, to me, just these uh, uh, very unfamiliar environments of these uh, selective universities. 
along with a lot of the the readings that I was doing uh, throughout the last few years. So yeah, I'm concerned about my own confirmation biases, because the things that you're talking about are things that I um, already believe to be true. And then you're telling me them. And then I'm going, aha, universities are like that. It's full of really wealthy, privileged people who get virtue status points by pointing out sort of the luxury beliefs that get the clicks. Um, but actually, they're a bunch of narcissists. And I mean, is that what it is that your experience of it it's it's uh it's hard to say i mean you know confirmation bias this is one of those things i i I remember i listened to this uh podcast with daniel kahneman who i don't know if he was the one who founded or discovered the confirmation bias but you know certainly he's like a a pioneer in behavioral uh economics and psychology and he was like you know i i don't like studying all of this stuff i'm not sure it makes me immune to any of it and, you know, I study this stuff and I bet, you know, if, if uh, Daniel Kahneman says that, it's, it almost certainly applies to me too. Like I, I'm, I'm not immune to any of this. Uh, I'm sure there's some confirmation bias going on. I try to, you know, give a good faith effort in hearing out the other side. I think there are, I, I mean, one thing that I should probably make clear is that I don't think that people who express luxury beliefs are, are always, or, or even most of the time doing it for like, they're not, it's not a conscious and calculated thing of like, Oh, if I say X, then I'll, I'll boost my status by this much. So therefore I'll say X. It's a sort of, um, an organic bottom up process where like, Oh, I notice when I say this, people react in a negative way. And if I say why, then, you know, they smile or they snap their fingers or they click like on Twitter or they're more likely to share or retweet and so on. They're more likely to, uh, uh appreciate what I have to say. And so, you know, you go through a few years of that and then suddenly, you know, you just gradually come to absorb through osmosis these beliefs and, you know, just, you know, coincidence or otherwise, they, they do tend to boost your, your esteem in the eyes of others. And so you don't start out with this, this, uh, strategic motive of like, I want to boost my status. What's the best way to do it? It's just like, oh, when I say this, people like me more. So I'll just keep saying it. But I still think that there is a burden of responsibility to the people who express luxury beliefs because, again, they're disproportionately members of the the upper, the upper middle class. I think in Britain, you would just say the middle class or maybe the upper middle class, you know, but, but basically people who are educated, well off, who hold a disproportionate amount of influence and wealth in society, they have a responsibility to think about the second order consequences of their beliefs. What, what would happen if this belief were implemented into policy? Uh, such as the defund the police idea, um, which we can talk about later if you want, and or or what what would be the the second order downstream effects if just just if this belief were widely adopted by the populace, and if people who were less fortunate than me were to start putting this belief into practice, uh, what would happen to them? But I don't think people think that far ahead. They just think like, oh, I notice people smile when I say this. So I'll just keep saying that and 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 continue to be well liked. So despite it not being overtly strategic, I still think there's some responsibility and some, um, you know, some obligation, some duty here to really think through what you're saying and to bear the 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 burden, the accountability of like, yes, you you know, these beliefs are, you know, many of them can be detrimental. And to some extent, yeah, you should be thinking about them. So I remember uh, when I was at university, um, there was similar things obviously going on. And everyone was very angry about the rise in prices of the universities. And I had loads of friends who were from privileged backgrounds like myself, you know, uh, who were going to uh, protest in London, because prices have gone up for university fees and things like that. And they were very angry and stuff. And I just remember thinking at the time, yeah, but they obviously need the money from somewhere. So 
presumably if, if someone's got to pay they've decided it's the students and and student loans the way they work in the uk is you don't even start paying them back until you're earning over a certain amount and they don't affect your credit rating or anything like that so i thought it's not pricing people out of university necessarily and it's a very complicated thing but it's probably more complicated than i even realized as an 18 or 19 year old but i knew i got a lot of sort of down social points so to speak for not going along with that and then also i guess i'm i'm guilty of the same stuff that you were saying about the clicks and things because once you make a decision of like okay i'm going to speak against that i suppose does your tribe change and then the kinds of people you want to impress are then the other people who agree with you and then i'm getting the same clicks for speaking out against and let's i mean what we're saying here we're talking about woke culture but no one wants to use the word woke anymore you know but we're talking about the progressive ideology associated with some left-wing people yeah i mean i i I would say that luxury beliefs don't necessarily have to be associated with the left um you know some people have have uh have made this charge against me saying, you know, oh, this luxury beliefs idea is just this like Trojan horse to sneak in a, a conservative perspective or something. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. Basically, I mean, it's just the fact is the people who are, you know, in relatively affluent and educated positions, they do tend to be more on the left and the beliefs they hold do tend to align more with progressive ideology. Uh, if you look at the, um, number of professors who identify as left-wing versus right-wing uh, in the U.S. and probably here in the U.K. too. It's, you know, between 80 and 90 percent. If you look at the uh, student body of of uh, the most selective universities in the U.S. And, and here in the U.K. too, they are overwhelmingly on the left. And so their views are going to reflect that. It has nothing to do with, oh, you're on the left, so I'm going to say X. It's like it's actually more like you're rich and educated and these are your beliefs and that's what I want you to focus on. I don't really care that much about your political ideology. I want you to reflect on your class and your position in society and what, what the funny thing is, like a lot of the uh, the thinkers that I draw from to construct the luxury beliefs concept and to really sort of uh, uh, explore the nuances of it. I mean, these thinkers are, I mean, they're on the left. At least they were in the mid 20th century. Pierre Bourdieu was a Marxist and he was pointing out all of the flaws with the ruling class in his day. And I'm just like borrowing that and, and implementing it now. And maybe things have changed. Probably in the mid 20th century, the the upper middle class and the upper class were you know, perhaps more on the right, whereas now they tend to be more on the left. But a lot of the flaws and foibles are still present regardless of their ideology. I mean, there are some like, I guess, more more conservative or right wing luxury beliefs, too. I mean, you know, a friend of mine. It was, so one thing that I do is I do like to speak with my more sort of left leaning friends. And, you know, it's funny, a few years ago, they were like, this luxury beliefs idea is ridiculous. And as time has gone on, especially, you know, in the last few years, they've been like, OK, so you, you had a point here. And they try to, I actually like, you know, try to crowdsource, like, tell me the right wing luxury beliefs, you know, give me the critiques of, of the right that you have. And some of them have said some interesting, uh, or present some interesting examples like, uh, trickle down economics, for example, uh, just let the rich keep their money and somehow magically they're, the poor are going to benefit from it. And this is, uh, you know, this is kind of a, uh, a belief that's held among more affluent people on the right who, you know, don't want to be taxed. Um, so there are some beliefs like that, but, but again, like, Nowadays, if you are relatively well educated and hold a good job, um, statistically speaking, you're, you know, you just tend to be more likely to be on the left. I suppose these are zero cost beliefs as well, aren't they? So it's like, if you happen to be a bit right wing and rich and stuff, it's like, isn't it fortunate that your ideology happens to coincide with the policy that will leave you with the most money? Like, hey, we'll help the whole country by keeping our money ourselves. And I suppose on, on the left, I mean, a couple of the, examples are in your essay i suppose we should go into the examples about the police and uh families and things like that that some people hold um those kinds of views yeah i mean the 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 
one of the examples that I gave in uh, my essays about luxury beliefs uh, is about the family. And this, you know, part of part of the reason why I highlighted that in particular was because of my own experiences. I mean, I remember when so I was I was in this class uh, a few years ago at Yale um, and the professor administered this anonymous poll to the class. There were like 20, 25 students. A uh, relatively small-ish seminar, and so we responded to this anonymous poll, and the question was, uh, how many of you were not raised by both of your birth parents? And out of 20-something students, there were only two. It was me, obviously, because I knew like I was one of them, and then there was someone else in this class. I didn't know who they were. It was anonymous, but out of 20-something students, only two were not raised by both of their birth parents, and then, so that floored me because where I grew up, you know, the foster homes and the sort of more poor and working-class communities that I grew up in... The, I mean, the number was, uh, I think, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I had five close friends in high school when I graduated, and none of us were raised by both of our parents. You know, it was me raised in foster homes. I had a friend who was raised by a single uh, mom, one raised by a single dad, one who was raised by his grandmother because one of his parents uh, was in prison and the other one was addicted to drugs and wasn't able to care for him. Uh, and so that was like the, the typical uh, story where I grew up, you know, families either never married or divorced or single parents and so on. And so, um, but then when I would speak to some of these, you know, students and graduates of these universities, they tended to hold uh, this view that, um, you know, well, I, I'll give you one example. So, so I remember I spoke uh, to one student who, and she told me that, that marriage and monogamy, they're outdated. And this is like a relatively prevalent view especially among young, you know, well-to-do college graduates that, ah, marriage and monogamy, it's kind of passe, it's kind of outdated, and they'll, you know, make these remarks that marriage is this sort of patriarchal structure rooted in, you know, this, this interlocking set of oppressive matrices or something like that. And so... You know, so so when I spoke with this young woman who who was a graduate of Yale and she's doing pretty well for herself, you know, I said, well, what do you like? How did you grow up? I asked her, like, how did you grow up? And she said she was raised by her mom and her dad, and that was basically her experience. The people she grew up around, she went to a private school. You know, that was just like all of her friends, same kind of story. And then I asked her, um, like, what are you going to do later on? Like, are you going to get married? Are you going to? you know, uh, do, do something else with, you know, you have this view that marriage is outdated. What are you going to do? And she said that she's probably going to get married later. She'll probably get a husband and sort of raise her family the way that she was raised. And, but then I asked her like, well, then why are you saying that marriage is outdated if you're going to get married? And she said, um, she said that, you know, it shouldn't have to be for everyone. Like you know, it should be like this personal choice, right? Like if you want to get married, but like, it's, it's, it's an outdated thing. And I don't think it should be promoted in society. And so on the one hand, she was a benefit of this, you know, millennia old social practice. And she planned herself to carry it forward. And almost everyone she knew who was in the same fortunate circumstance as her also benefited from this. And yet her official public position was like, don't do this. Like, stay away from this. And, uh, I remember I, 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 I talked about this once with, uh, with a friend of mine and he was saying it's, it's almost like, uh, 
you know, this person saying like medicine is outdated, you know, I'm going to take this medicine that has a pretty high likelihood statistically of benefiting me. Um, I'm going to give this medicine to my kid and everyone I know who's, who's in a relatively fortunate position, they're going to take this medicine. But, but by the way, the medicine is outdated. You shouldn't take it. It's probably bad for you. We need to move past it. And, uh, and I thought that was a, a you know, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it gets at this idea of, you know, this opinion will confer status to you. It makes you seem sophisticated or interesting or educated, right? Because the, the conventional view in society is like, most people want to get married. Most people want to have families. Um, but so a good way to distinguish yourself and make yourself seem interesting and high status is to go against the conventional view and take this sort of oppositional stance rebellious it sounds it's it's rebellious but again like i was saying zero cost so it's that thing like i, I think a lot of people uh i remember you know when i was doing my history classes at school i would always think about oh god i sort of i'd have these daydreams where i was in the deep south in the 1800s and i would say hey slavery's wrong uh or be in the holocaust and, and harbor a, a jewish person in my house or something like that but the reality is like obviously right now that would get me loads of social points so of course i think that way but back in the day i'd probably condition myself in some way to make excuses is for slavery or even you know why we shouldn't be harboring jews and stuff because i'm out i'm looking out for myself and that person gets to then that you're talking about gets to have all the as you say the credit and uh, for being a rebel and all that stuff without actually having to do it themselves i suppose they raise a point of like you know marriage and, and the family the traditional family unit doesn't have to be for everyone does it i i mean it doesn't have to be uh, and you know, I, my, I, I wouldn't like, you know, if I was put in charge, I wouldn't force anyone to do anything, like, you know, do whatever you want. But if you are the beneficiary of something, at the very least, you don't have to publicly stand against it, right? Like if you just sort of keep your opinion and that's fine, whatever, but there is something to me like very duplicitous and detrimental to abiding by a set of practices while simultaneously trying to publicly undermine those same set of practices for other people, because like, you know, if, if that view becomes widespread and implemented, um, and, and I mean, it, it actually has. So, you know, I, I've pointed this out, uh, in various essays too. I mean, if you look at the, uh, deterioration of the family, I mean, yeah, I guess it doesn't have to be for everyone. And the fact is like, actually nowadays the family is basically, uh, uh, you know, either, either sort of fragmented or almost non-existent among poor and working class communities. So, um, in 1960, uh, if you looked at, um, upper and lower class families in America, uh, 95% of children were raised by both of their parents, uh, 95% of upper and 95% of, uh, lower class families. Um, the children were raised by both their parents. So if you fast forward to 2005, for the upper class, it dropped to 85%. So there was a slight drop. It was 95, now it dropped to 85. Whereas for um, lower class, this is sort of like the poor and working class communities, uh, it went from 95% in 1960 to 30% in 2005. And so nowadays, like it's very much, um, you know, an anomaly. You know, if you meet someone whose parents didn't go to college and who work blue collar jobs and who aren't married, um, like, you know, practically, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to find people like that uh, who are raised in that sort of traditional two family structure. Whereas if you visit um, more upper, upper middle class communities, that's the norm still. So, yeah, it doesn't have to be for everyone, I, I guess. But but at the same time, like the people who are benefiting from it are living that way. And they are, you know, at the same time promoting beliefs and policies and practices that appear to be sort of detrimental in the long run to those who are less fortunate.
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Should we get into your personal story? Um, you start with a very moving introduction to your essay. What's the name of the essay? The Lost The Lost Boys? Was uh, America's Lost Boys and Me. And it's it's a really moving essay. And it's particularly the very first you know few paragraphs when you're talking about your very first memories. I mean, are you able to take us through that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, this is my earliest, earliest memory. Um, you know, I'm, I'm three years old. I'm in a, a slum apartment somewhere in Westlake, which is a pretty rundown part of Los Angeles. And you know, I didn't, I didn't know that until later, but the, my, my direct immediate memory, the visceral memory is I'm clutching my mother's lap and I keep sort of coming up for air and I see these, you know, these tall looking guys in dressed in all black. And I just somehow instinctively knew that they were taking my mother away and I didn't know why. And so I thought that if I just held on to her tight enough that they would just go away. Like, you know, I'd come up every few seconds for air and hope that they would have just disappeared. And then the memory kind of ends there. And then the next, you know, there's a sort of a smash cut to me being in this long white hallway 
and I'm sitting on this bench and I'm drinking chocolate milk and I, I sneeze and drop the milk and spill it. And I look over at my mom for help. She's sitting right next to me and she can't help me because she's wearing handcuffs. And then I start to cry. And, you know, then, you know, from there, I, I, I um, enter the uh, Los Angeles foster care system and, you know, spend the next uh, few years in foster homes. So, yeah, I mean, those are my, like, some total of my, my memories of my, my mother. I, I don't know who my father is. Um, and at least the, the documents that I later got as an adult from, from uh, my caseworker, social worker, you know, even my mother didn't seem to know who he was either. So yeah. And, and so my mother was addicted to drugs. She was uh, having a very, you know, very difficult time herself. So she wasn't able to care for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I was, I was taken and, and put into care. And so, yeah, those were, I mean, and then I, I ended up living in, in seven different foster homes um, after that. Have you spoken to your mother since, do you know, have you have news of her? No, no, I haven't. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really have a strong uh, interest in learning more there. I mean, maybe later this will change. It's possible. But my my guess is she's probably not in very good shape. And I'm not sure that, that uh, you know, seeing her would be a, a great experience. And yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I, I haven't had any have any interest, but um, perhaps sometime, someday soon. What was the Los Angeles foster system like? And, and did you know that as a child that things would different for you or, or, or particularly difficult for, for you? Um, I mean, it was, it was chaotic. Uh, the, some of the homes, most of the homes had, you know, upwards of eight or 10 children living in them. I mean, the foster care system everywhere is, is, um, you know, imperfect to put it mildly, but in LA, it's really bad. Um, there are lots of kids who uh, are in need of care and there aren't enough foster parents available. So yeah, I mean, some of these homes would have, you know, bunches of kids and not enough people looking out for them. And so it's just a sort of a chaotic mess of, you know, kids scrambling and, uh, you know, dinner time is just chaos, uh, you know, getting to school on time. No one's really looking out. I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, I'm sure foster parents, most of them do the best they can. Some of them are in it for financial reasons. You know, you, you do receive a monthly stipend for each child that you take care of. So there are, you know, conflicting incentives at work here. And so, yeah, as a kid, I was just, uh, you know, it was just a whirlwind, most of these, these homes. And yeah, I was bouncing around schools every, you know, few months. So my grades were in shambles. I didn't really learn how to read until I was, I think, seven. I was seven years old. And you know, my grades were so bad that I remember I was living in a, it was, you know, I was living in a foster home and my foster mother. So I, in the, at this point, the, the final foster home I lived in, I was actually the only kid there. Um, and so she actually noticed that like something was going on with me and with my grades. And so I think she was contacted by the teacher and they agreed to have me tested by a psychologist. And yeah, she had, the, the psychologist came and I remember the psychologist, you know, she asked like, do you, do you want, like, would you, do you want your foster mother here in the room with you? Or do you want me to, you know, are you okay with her leaving? And, you know, it was, to me, it was almost a weird question because, you know, the psychologist was a stranger to me and I'd only known my foster mother at this point for like, I don't know, a couple months at most. It was like, you know, well, I've known her for two months and I've known you for two minutes. So it's like, I guess I want her to stay, but either way, it's like almost being in a room with two strangers still. So, um, yeah, I went through this test and, you know, I, I didn't even, I, I put in very little effort into it. 
Um, yeah, I, I just didn't care. I didn't care about this test. I didn't care about school. I just like felt completely, um, disengaged from, from law, you know, like, you know, all of that. I didn't really understand what's going on around me either. I was too young. So yeah, I mean the, the, the score. So I, I received the test scores later as an adult, I got this thick file, uh, from, from my social worker. And it was like, you know, I scored like what, like well into the bottom 50% of my reading score, like a below average overall. I mean, my, my scores were a mess. My grades were terrible. Like there were no, no signs at all that I would be, you know, uh, a decent student. So, um, yeah, I ended up teaching myself to read later, but, but yeah, it was, uh, it was just, a, a you know, it was a difficult experience. Was this was this the love a, a loving home? Was this the Henderson family? So that was so after that final foster home um, where I took that test, uh, I was adopted um, by this family, uh, sort of working class family, and we settled in a town in Northern California called Red Bluff, uh, which is a pretty impoverished town. It's about two hours north of Sacramento. Um, a lot of people don't know this part of California very well, uh, but it is, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, well, Red Bluff, I, it typically ranks in like the third or the fourth most dangerous city in California. Uh, you know, the level of, of childhood poverty is, is pretty pronounced. Um, yeah, you know, most of the adults didn't go to college or anything like that. I mean, I'll give you like my graduating class, you know, most people didn't go to college, um, or university. So, yeah, I was adopted by them and about, mm, about a year, year and a half later, they divorced my adoptive parents. Uh, and this was hard for me, you know, because I'd finally felt like I had this home and then they split up and my adoptive father, um, basically severed ties with me because he was angry at my adoptive mother for leaving him. And so, you know, that was his way of sort of getting back at her. And, you know, by this point I was around, you know, nine years old and yeah, like getting into trouble, getting into mischief. Uh, yeah, it was just sort of one thing after another. And yeah. So now, you know, but, uh, once they split up, I was living with my mom, we were living a uh, you know, single mom living in a duplex, uh, in Red Bluff and she was working, you know, during the day trying to pay the bills and I'd come home from school and like had no supervision whatsoever. And so, you know, what do like little boys do when they don't have their parents around? They go, Hey, they hang out with each other and get into trouble and mischief and smoke cigarettes and weed and experiment with drugs and vandalize buildings and all that stuff. Right. And then you know, I was nine years old when I started doing all of this. Uh, well, actually, no, I, I was doing a little bit of it in the foster homes, but I was so small and you know, there was just so much going on that I didn't always get to get it. But like by this point, you know, at nine, I was, you know, started experimenting with all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was sort of the the environment I, I grew up in. And, and a lot of the guys I grew up around, uh, they grew up in like that, too. You know, it's funny. So a lot of people will use my my uh, experience, you know, my story, say, oh, like, you know, what was your secret or how did you make it or what was, or they like to use this as like a case of, you know, well, he succeeded so anyone can succeed or something like that. But it's, it's, it's not, it's not true. So, you know, again, I, I had five close friends, um, through middle school and high school and none of the five of my closest friends went to college. I mean, two of them went to prison. Uh, one of them was recently fired from Walmart, you know, uh, 
one of them, I think, still lives with his parents. Like, the other one is just, you know, I, I actually don't know what he's up to nowadays. But, yeah, I mean, th- those are sort of like the, the typical, those are like the modal outcomes of someone from that environment is like, you know, like the best you can do is like avoid prison. Like That's sort of like, if you do that, it's like you did pretty you did pretty good for yourself. I guess it's st- statistics, isn't it? I mean, what one individual human, you can't predict anything they're going to do. But if you, if you, you know, a huge demographic and put them in a particular situation, you can usually predict it yeah 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 that's right and so you know overall the the you know if you're going to predict what's going to happen it's it's going to be um you know sort of menial job not doing very well something like that so yeah i mean that was that was the the environment that i had had moved into and you know there's there were other things that happened in the meantime but yeah by the time i was 17 uh and i i barely graduated high school um yeah, I mean, I was I was such a bad student. I my my senior year of high school, I took this um, this auto shop class. Uh, my best friend and I, and we were serious. Like it's so funny. We started out with uh, we were earnest. We we're like, let's learn how to like work on cars, and maybe we can get jobs as mechanics or something. And we tried for like the first week, but we had no oversight. Like no one was paying. You know, no one made sure we did our homework. You know, it was just uh, you know there was no there were there were no constraints. And so, you know, eventually we just started like putting the car on the car lift, right? So you drive your car into the lift and then you raise the car up and we would just take turns doing this. One of us would get into the, 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 the driver's seat. The other one would raise the lift. And then like, we just like take naps, right? Like we just like sleep, just like put me in the car, put me up. Like the teacher can't see us, recline the seat and just like crash out and because it was, it was first period. So, you know, it's first thing in the morning. So we're like, perfect. We could just sleep in class. And like that was the kind of stuff we were doing. Were there were there any hints even back then? Was there any hints of your uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but soaring intellect that lying deep within? I, I mean, I read a lot. Um, I would do. Uh, I wouldn't do the homework. I mean, by that point, I had such a a, a low opinion of adults and people in charge and authority. I I mean, it, it could have been you know a variety of reasons for that i mean you know i didn't have any sort of stable uh parental figures you know i I had them on and off it was like sporadic in my childhood um but by the time i reached high school it was just like you know any kind of um, respect i had was was more or less gone so i didn't care about school i didn't like listening to teachers i did the bare minimum like i i knew i wanted to graduate and i knew i wanted to get out of red bluff and i figured you know graduating high school was like a bare minimum i should at least do that so i put in a bare minimum effort but i would still like do the math exercises in my textbooks and i would still read the assignments even if i wouldn't do them i mean i found it um innately interesting to me this work you know like if the history teacher would say read these chapters i would read the chapters and find it interesting so i'd read ahead of the class or um, I'd, I'd visit the school library and check out books that I, I thought were uh, interesting or appealed to me in some way. Catch, Catcher in the in the Rye. Did you read that one? It's, it's the Rebel. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we had that one assigned in tenth uh, grade. We we had that, and I remember I actually read that. So that was a class where I actually did the. Re- I didn't do the assignment. You know, you had to write an essay about it or talk about the, the literary motifs, and I didn't care about that. I would just read the book and you know draw draw whatever interested me from it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was on my own sort of like, you know, makeshift academic program that I made on my own of like, I'll read what I like, I'll do what I like, but I won't do anything else. Um, and that was sort of enough to like get me through and, and graduate. I graduated in the bottom third of my class. Um, but I mean, I don't know if like people would have seen, oh, yeah, this is going to be someone who's going to do very well later. I think they would have just thought like, yeah, he's uh, he's probably a pretty s- smart kid 
who's not applying himself and, you know, maybe has problems at home or something. Like, that's what I would imagine a lot of people would say. Does it frustrate you then? And I suppose we're going back to the whole ideological stuff that people focus a lot on inequities or inequalities to do with race, gender, identity, politics, kinds of things. And then I, I would always say, well, you know, to, I'm sure it's poverty. But then reading your article, um, you mentioned instability. I mean, I'm sure it's poverty to an extent, but instability is, is the main. So, so what yes tell me about <laughs> i haven't really phrased a question there but tell yes speak on that rob it's um it's a good question and it's something that i think is overlooked uh about well, you know what are the factors that lead to you know more positive versus negative outcomes for for kids and so i've done a fair bit of research into this um and yeah a lot of people focus on income or socioeconomic status family background this kind of thing and you know, so, so in, uh, developmental psychology and a lot of the research, they make a distinction between, uh, childhood harshness and childhood instability. And harshness is basically defined as low socioeconomic status or low family income. You know, basically how much money did your parents have when you were growing up is a measure of, you know, the, the harshness of the environment. Uh, and childhood instability in contrast is, uh, is a, it basically captures, uh, the number of relocations you experienced in childhood, uh, whether you were raised by a single parent, whether your parents divorced, how many different romantic partners your parents had living in the house with you when you were growing up. Um, you know, just the basic like level of chaos and stability in your early life, you know, how much disorder was there? And every single study that I've looked at, the, uh, link between, uh, uh, instability and childhood outcomes is much stronger. So instability is a stronger predictor of addiction, uh, you know, likelihood of, of uh, you know, being incarcerated, your likelihood of graduating college, uh, how much money you earn later in life, how happy you are in adulthood. I mean, basically all of the so, you know, social variables that you care about, um, the stronger predictor is actually instability rather than than poverty. And 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 this is in a, in a uniquely, um, I want to say it's, it's, well, most of the studies are in the U.S. Some of them may be in uh, like Western Europe too, but by and large, like at least in sort of more developed Western societies, it seems like poverty doesn't explain very much. I mean, part of this is because poverty is different now than it used to be in these countries. I mean, poverty used to be, you know, there was a New Yorker article a few years ago, and there was a line in, in there that stood out to me, and it was roughly something like, you know, in, in the past, when you were poor, uh, that means you didn't get to eat. And today, if you're poor in America, I mean, and, and today, if you're poor, it means you're on food stamps, right? Like those are two different kinds of poverty. One poverty is like, oh, I don't get to eat this week. The other kind of poverty is, oh, I'm receiving some kind of stipend from the government to help me and my family get along. And so it's still, a, a, you know, it's not a great position to be in to have to require assistance to, to get by and to survive and so on and to be unable to sustain yourself in that way. But still, like there's a difference between eating and not eating. And in that sense, like, yes, you're technically in poverty, relative poverty compared to other people in your society, but it just, it's just a different kind of poverty. And so this, this, this instability thing is something that I wanted to highlight in, in some of my writings. And so, you know, there's even studies that have controlled for, um, childhood instability where they look at, um, you know, for example, they'll look at only rich families. You know, let's look at only rich families, you know, that are like one or two standard deviations above the median uh, uh, U.S. income. And among even among those families, instability predicts uh, all kinds of detrimental outcomes. And there are people like this. You know, there are 
uh, relatively affluent families where the kids, you know, they experience divorce and, you know, they see their parents addicted to drugs or alcohol or chaos in the home. You know, there are, you know, rich families that are kind of messed up too. And kids see that and that affects them later on in life as well. Um, it just so happens that those kinds of, um, uh, uh, you know, scenarios occur more, more frequently in, uh, you know, less, less advantaged communities. But yeah, that's something that, uh, that I think we could focus more on. I mean, there's just, when we talk about policy, it's like economic policy. How can we, uh, you know, level the playing field or, or promote equity and all of those things? And I'm not even against it. I'm not against financial assistance by any means, but I wish that we could also focus on the other factors that can lead to uh, a flourishing life for a child's um, beyond the sort of basic material needs. The family unit. I'm, I'm intrigued about what might be a better predictor of success then, you know, or who would have a better chance, someone from a very wealthy family with neglect, neglectful parents, which I'm sure does, as you say, does happen uh, fairly often, uh, or somebody from a very loving family unit all stayed together uh, who are, you know, finding it a struggle to make ends meet. That would be interesting. I mean, there's been some suggestive research uh, here in the UK, I think of, uh, like immigrant populations where, you know, they come here without much, much in the way of material resources, but they still retain a lot of the strong family, uh, values that they brought with what, you know, the, the, their country of origin and they instill those values into their kids. And, you know, if you look at, you know, among people who are relatively low, uh, socioeconomic background, the people who are the most likely to succeed among them tend to actually be from uh, immigrant backgrounds in the UK, uh, you know, probably because they just hold a different set of values and different beliefs about family and school and education and child rearing and all of those things compared to, uh, you know, the native population. So, you know, I, I think there is something there. You know, if you compare, you know, the very rich versus the poor, yeah, I'm not sure what I would predict there, but at least like if you're looking at the poor, uh, you know, I, I think like, yeah, it, it seems to be that like values have at least as strong an effect as uh, as you know being in a, in a fortunate economic position. I certainly I wouldn't want to be uh, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't want to insult anyone who did have a childhood like this, of course. But like, if you get sent to a boarding school or, or whatever, obviously some families are absolutely fine with that, but some kids suffer from that. I think I went to a private school, and there were certain loads of kids who were just totally, totally screwed up because they had you know, and it was that thing where you'd have to whisper, be like, oh, they've got a bit of a family situation at home and it would completely screw them up so i think what what you're speaking about really does ring true um and also i i read f from your work that childhood instability can be associated with um the dark triads what and what what are they oh yeah 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 so so this is some interesting work uh indicating that so so the dark triad uh personality traits it's a constellation of characteristics encompassing uh, narcissism, which is, you know, entitled self-importance. Many people know that term and psychopathy, which is, you know, a disregard for others, a sort of a callousness in how you view others and Machiavellianism, which is, uh, you know, this, uh, duplicitous, uh, outlook and strategic exploitation of other people. Uh, and so psychologists have wondered, you know, what, what predicts, uh, who, who has these traits? And one particularly strong predictor of having high scores on these dark triad personality traits is childhood instability. Uh, you know, again, having a sort of disorderly and chaotic upbringing, uh, has a pretty strong link later on. You know, when you grow up, you, on average, you tend to score higher on, on these traits. Um, 
Whereas uh, childhood poverty has no association whatsoever with the dark triad personality traits. Uh, there's also some interesting research. It's kind of related on, on empathy. Uh, so childhood uh, poverty uh, is actually positively correlated with uh, strong empathy in adulthood. Basically, if you grow up poor, you're more likely to be an empathic individual as an adult. Uh, whereas if you, <laughs> whereas if you ha- have an, an unstable childhood, you're more, you're less likely to be empathic as an adult. So they actually have opposite effects. Oh, so if you want a really empathic child, even if you're wealthy, you've got to like hide <laughs> that you've got money from them, like not spoil them, yeah. but also be quite loving and nice and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily like, I, I, I don't, I don't think you should, uh, you know, deprive a kid and think that's going to make them empathic or something. These are, these are of course like averages over time and things like that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there, there probably is something going on here because I've seen this in other studies too, that there's something uh, about wealth that seems to reduce, uh, perspective taking for others and so on. And, you know, it's possible that just if you grow up with, with, uh, everything you ever need, it's just more difficult to identify with others and, and their needs and wants and so forth. Um, whereas I think that if you, uh, yeah, if you have a, a more unstable childhood and, you know, things are just more chaotic, you know, that, that too can sort of dampen, dampen empathy as well. You know, especially if you're in that sort of relentless, like fight or flight mode of, you know, what's tomorrow going to look like, it just becomes harder, I think, to start to uh, incorporate perspectives of others when you're just trying to get by day to day. Um, so these might be, you know, potential explanations. I'm not saying they're the reason, but but the uh, the links are there and they're relatively pronounced. Uh, so, yeah. And, and the other thing is, uh, uh, you know, the, the light triad personality traits. So these are sort of the opposite of the, the dark triad. Um so the light triad traits uh, encompass uh, faith in humanity, humanism, and Kantianism, you know, named after the philosopher Immanuel Kant. But basically, these are like these um, kind of uh, th- these traits encompass sort of faith in humanity. How good do you think others are? How much do you trust them? Uh, are you inclined more towards behaving in a cooperative manner or a more exploitative manner? Those kinds of things. And there's some research indicating that... Uh, Childhood instability predicts lower scores on the light triad. So, you know, basically it seems like, you know, for personality, predicting personality, it looks like uh, instability matters more than poverty. And I can imagine some people saying, you know, well, isn't isn't instability like the reason why you know people have unstable family lives is because they lack money. Is that the reason? And there is a small uh, correlation between those two things, but it's 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 far from perfect. It's actually smaller than you would think. Um and, and again, like, you know, we, we, we mentioned before that there are, uh, rich families that are kind of unstable and, uh, uh, disorderly. And there are poor families that, uh, do have, uh, stable structures and provide a decent home for the kids despite not having much in the way of material resources. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but, but I think that the punchline is that instability matters more than, than poverty for kids. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Emmanuel Kant always seemed 
like a bit like a psychopath to me because he had this thing about always be honest about every so even if like you know somebody came to your door when they were running away from someone trying to kill them and then you know you you hid them and then someone came and said is that person you know the person trying to kill them came to your door and said are they in you have to be honest and he said the reason for that is because if if the person you're harboring escaped in that time and you didn't realize and then because you're sent like let's say it's a nazi you've sent him away they then bump into each other and the nazi then finds the guy and kills him then you were responsible because you lied and i just thought you sound like a maniac yeah yeah he was i mean he was a very sort of like a moralizing person who had like these beliefs in like the hard and fast yeah, well, I mean, I remember reading a, about him and I took a philosophy class where we learned a, bit, a little bit about his, you know, his f- philosophy. And he, yeah, I think he suggested that, you know, basically you don't want to lie because if everyone lied, then we would live in a worse world or something like that, something along those lines. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He, he somehow he's had a very strong influence in moral philosophy, but uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. He's kind of a weird guy, but I think a lot of philosophers are kind of weird. Yeah, I bet they are. I, I think you need some liars just for evolutionary psychology, just tribes. There's got to be some some liars in the tribe. But um, I want to ask you as well about, you know, boys tend to suffer from instability more than girls. Is that right? Yeah. That, I mean, that these are kind of interesting findings. I mean, it almost looks like, uh, I mean, overall, uh, instability appears to be detrimental for both boys and girls. But yeah, it has an especially large effects on, on young boys where, you know, if you, I mean, it's kind of interesting if you look at some research that indicates that if kids grow up in like stable and affluent environments, um, of course, boys and girls are more likely to benefit from that. But boys tend to benefit, I think, slightly more. There's like a very slight effect where boys are slightly, yeah, in, in those kind of more wealthy families, whereas in poor families, again, both boys and girls do uh, relatively poorly, but boys are actually more uh negatively affected by this um so yeah more likely to grow up to be unemployed less likely to go to college uh more likely to get involved in criminal activity and so on and this is this is especially true in fatherless homes so you know what some people call like dad deprived kids um they're yeah they're they're even more likely to uh get involved in mischief and and have uh you know, uh, downward trajectory in terms of their life outcomes, less likely to graduate high school, all of those things. And, you know, some people say it might be because of a like, lack of role models, right? Where uh, if you don't have a, a, a father figure in the home, it just becomes harder for you to, to you know, obey the rules or, or to see someone else succeed and, and want to strive after, you know, strive after that, um, that image as well. So, yeah, it seems that uh, that instability has you know, these, these kinds of especially pronounced effects on, on young boys. And this may explain what's going on more broadly. I mean, you may have been following some of this, uh, you know, the research and the popular articles on this. Richard Reeves just wrote a book on this of boys and men about how uh, boys and men in society seem to be falling behind. Uh, now, I think 60% of college students are female. Uh and the number is projected to continue to keep growing with no signs of slowing down. Today, more women obtain bachelor's degrees than men. They're more likely to get master's. And I think PhDs, they just recently passed men in terms of uh, achieving PhDs. And, you know, people still say that, 
you know, of course, like if you look at the people who are in the most prominent positions in society, they happen to be men, but they're older men from a previous generation when, you know, women were barred from, uh, 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 you know, achieving uh, education and, and occupational attainment and so on. Uh, but this youngest generation, I mean, if you roll the clock forward in 20 or 30 years, I think it's going to be the opposite where like, you know, the, 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 uh, people in the most prominent positions are overwhelmingly going to be, uh, women and, you know, men will be further, further behind. It's not going to be the sort of the dream of equality. I think we all had where, you know, you're going to have a, a, a relative gender balance. It's just going to kind of swing in the opposite direction. Um, and yeah, guys are kind of young guys are just kind of dropping out of society. They're kind of aimless. And I think a big part of this is just, um, you know, the family structure falling apart and, and boys not having role models or people around them to instill character or discipline or, you know, to help help motivate them. I wonder how much of this is about social status uh, that we've got for the different sexes and what, and, and what will give us status. Because I know that, you know, as a kid myself, I didn't want to do well in exams because it was seen as like you know overly i don't know prudent or uh, or whatever and the girls i knew and again this is entirely anecdotal they seemed to base their entire identity around how well they did in exams and things and if they failed it was like a failure of identity so it was just everything was on the line whereas the guys were just like if you did well it was like oh you geek you know yeah i remember this too i had the same kind of uh, experience it's funny, you know, like a few years removed, you kind of forget about this. But like, I remember like, you know, like copying off of girls in school and, yeah. and the girls thought it was funny. They're like, oh, you like, you know, you, 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 you know, you're, you're ridiculous. You need to copy off me. And it was almost like an excuse to flirt in some, some cases. And, um, and yeah, like no one ever copied off of, I mean, th- th- we did have like some geeky boys who did do the work and whatever, but like no one wanted to copy off that. I think like part of the copying was just an excuse to talk to girls. Um, so there may be like an element of status involved as well, especially like if you don't have anything to counteract that, like if you're, if you don't have anyone at home, you know, saying like, you need to do your schoolwork and you need to do X, Y, Z to get into university. But if instead it's just like all of the accolades and, and status you're deriving comes from your peer group. And they're like, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of teenage boys who are like, you know, homework is dumb and you shouldn't do that. And who cares? Um, then yeah, you actually, in a way, you get status from not doing what you're supposed to do, which is, you know, that may be another reason why. I mean, if you look at, uh, yeah, like college graduation rates, like women from um, relatively poor backgrounds are still, uh, yeah, they're, they're quite a bit more likely. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they're much more likely to go on to higher education and to, uh, you know, uh, obtain uh, you know, relatively uh, well-paying jobs compared to boys in similar circumstances. And yeah, maybe that's because there's not a, a culture of, of obtaining status by not doing your work. It's still like, I, yeah, I, I mean, I still remember like, you know, again, like anecdotal, right. Of girls in my school who were also from like similar kinds of backgrounds, but they did their work and they tried and they were applying to college and they did everything that they had to do, uh, to, to do well in life. And, no one made fun of them for it or anything like that. It's uh, yeah, they're kind of different. These sort of different miniature cultures of, of boys and girls in school uh, in these kind of communities. I went to an all boys school, so I didn't really get all that. But I, I, you know, I knew enough people in the community to to understand the differences. And I wonder how much it was to do with. I, I am obsessed with the whole status thing, by the way. So listeners will be bored of me going on about this. But you know, if, if the three main ways of of getting status are dominance, uh, virtue, and success, if those are the three ways in a tribe, you're going to get given more 
food if you're successful because you've made a wheel or the fire people give you food if you're virtuous because you're helping people they give you the food and if you're dominant they give you the food and you do i think get more men who can fall into the dominant category if they if they're maybe seeking a lot of status because they're unhappy or whatever it might be uh whereas for women particularly in in an environment of women and men it might be a little bit harder on average for them to be dominant so they might try and be virtuous and i think sort of doing all your homework and that kind of thing is 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 it falls into the virtue uh category that's interesting okay so the idea here might be that if there are three paths right this was um and recently, it's been popularized by Will Storr in his in his new book. Yeah, he's yeah he's great, uh, big fan. And uh, and so, if you have those three avenues open to you, probably the dominance avenue is just either more attractive and more open to to men, especially young men, right? I mean, they're just like personality and disposition and everything, maybe more oriented toward dominance. And for women, you know, you may have like one of those doors, or the the, the pathway there is just more narrow. And so you're just more likely to fall into the virtuous or the uh, success roots. And so, yeah, for boys, I could imagine like this may be another reason why. And, and yeah, this, this could explain why boys are more likely to, uh, you know, get involved in gangs or crime or, I mean, I guess sports too. I mean, there are other ways to express dominance as well. Um, but that is like, you know, a, a less likely pathway to achieve like kind of, the kind of markers of, of like mainstream socially recognized success uh, through education and your jobs and how much money you have and so forth. Um, or, I mean, if they do want the money, right, they, they, they do it through illicit means through like a dominance uh, uh, approach. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that whole idea, but I've, I've, I, I talk about Will Store too often, so I can't, I can't keep talking about it. Have you had him on? Have you had him on the podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was great. And since then, I've just seen everything through that prism and even when i'm saying it I, i'm imagining those people listening going oh shut up about will store and shut up about the status game that you're completely oversimplifying everything but it just helps me to view things through those three uh thing and then i view everything i do through that and everything people do and all the the clicking you were talking about when everyone clicks like well done those are virtue points that people are getting because it's no longer acceptable in a university to walk around being dominant which is probably a good thing really of the three i like the success one i find dominance and virtue to be you know i mean it's good to help people of course and you also need leaders so you need those two things in any tribal group but really success is what it should be about and i suppose women are having more of it at the moment in education uh and you know good it's, it's, it's you know it is i don't know why i don't really have much to say about that it's good i suppose hey are, are there are there ways that you given your unstable in, childhood that you still suffer today are there in in your in your personality in your relationships and things uh i mean nowadays probably not much um yeah, I mean, day to day, I probably feel about the same as anyone else. You know, there's earlier, I think, like when I was younger, like teenage years and early 20s. So I'm 32 now. So, you know, I, I mean, generally speaking, like if you if you look broadly at like the research on personality and, you know, all of the sort of, uh, you know, traits that make up a human being, you know, like you're basically regardless, regardless of your childhood, regardless of your personal experiences, you're just worse when you're a teenager and in your early twenties, you're more narcissistic, more self-centered, less agreeable, you know, less conscientious, all of those things, like all of the sort of like the good traits, you're just, you just have, you're just lower on them and empathy uh, as well. And especially if you're a young man, right? Like 20 year old man, regardless of their background, they tend not to be the best people in the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, many, yeah, many of them, perhaps most, 
Uh, and so, yeah, by the time you reach your late twenties and early thirties, a lot of that stuff just kind of tapers off. I mean, even if you look at like criminals, uh, like psychopathic criminal types, they tend to burn out later in life and they sort of peak, you know, there's a sort of age crime curve idea where you peak around 19 and a lot of criminals, you know, once they reach the thirties, they're actually not that interested in crime. So, so yeah, broadly speaking, I mean, I'm, I'm, I probably like kind of follow that pattern, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard for me early on. I mean, I, I was fortunate in that I joined the military, so I was in this sort of rigid environment where, you know, there was a structure in place for me. And, you know, even if I wanted to act out or wanted to express, uh, you know, my anger or something, it was just harder to do it. And there was just so, uh, like, the, the, the structure in place was so uh, constraining and confining that, you know, it was it was pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult to get in trouble. In the, I mean, you can if you want. There are ways to do it. But... They just make it very clear that if you if you do, um, you'll be swiftly punished. Whereas outside of that, the confines of that environment, right? If you're just like a 19 year old kid out in the world, um, you know, it's 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 uh, there's a, a an element of randomness as far as like if you commit a crime or if you do something stupid, there's a good chance you may not be caught and you can get away with things at least for a while. You know, you can kind of do stupid things and increase your chances over time of getting caught. But at least early on, it's like, wow, I can do this and no one cares and you know whatever. Even to yourself, right? Like you can do drugs. And it can take years before you see the effects of it. Um, so even if you're just doing damage to yourself, the military uh, prohibits drug use, right? So if you fail a drug test, you know, you actually go to prison. So they have very strict rules in place. And so that was like a pretty smart decision. But no, there were there were effects, too. So, yeah, I mean, I, I write about this. And so I'm writing a book about uh, these experiences. I'm writing a memoir. It'll be out. I mean, talking to my editor, but it'll probably be out in early 2024, where, you know, I explore some of these um, experiences and try to delve down deep into like what I was going through at that time. But yeah, I it it sort of tapered off and yeah, managed to put most of it behind me. And you've got now a, a glittering educational resume with, you know, Yale, Cambridge and lots of these things and life seems to be going well, great prospects. Um, would you trade all of your achievements and prospects to have had a, a more traditional upbringing? Uh, I mean, yes. So, you know, I, I think that there's this belief that, you know, especially in this sort of striving, you know, this striving culture that, you know, if you just achieve enough worldly success, then it can make up for whatever you went through. Um, you know, if you, if you just, you know, if we get, an, if we get more foster kids into college or if we get more poor kids into high paying occupations and just do better in terms of like how much education and money and success they get, then like that's sort of the, the, the measure of how we're doing as a society. Um, Whereas I tend to think like actually the measure of how we're doing as a society is like the, the sort of subjective phenomenological experience of a child and like what they're going through. Um, you know, and I, basically like childhood instability isn't bad because, you know, those kids are, are less likely to graduate from college or more likely to be incarcerated or, you know, more likely to become addicted to drugs or something like childhood instability is bad because of the kid who is experiencing it. Like that is what we should be focusing on is like, like, if you ask the kid, like, you know, how are you feeling? And they're going to say, I'm feeling bad. And you're going to say, why? They're not going to say, because this means I'm, you know, 7% less likely to go to college. They're going to tell you, like, because I'm in pain or I wish my dad was around or, you know, I wish, like, I would come home and there wasn't so much yelling and screaming or something like that, right? 
uh, and that's why, like, I, I wish we could focus more on that. Um, so yeah, I, I just think like for me and for a lot of people who've been in my position and who've done relatively well for themselves, you know, it, it's just, it doesn't make up for it. It's not, uh, it, I think it would have been, you know, uh, a lot of people would have rather have had a, a different kind of life, including me of just like, well, you know, you don't get to whatever, go to Yale or something, but you get to have like a better early life. Um, I, I would have taken that deal. Rob, where would you like to send people sort of the socials and things like that? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson and my Substack, robkhenderson.substack.com. Rob, thank you for being on the edge. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Rob Henderson, for joining me today. What a fascinating look into luxury beliefs that was, and what an amazing person he is, an inspiration to us all. So do give our guest some love by following him on Twitter, that's Rob K. Henderson, and signing up to his Substack newsletter on robkhenderson.com. Coming up are the man who lived biblically for a year, and the astronomer on black holes. But now... Oh no, we're finished, aren't we? Right, that's the end. I'll see you next time. <laughs>